Section five Fortune Wildred This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Charles Dickens's two hundredth anniversary collection, volume three. Fortune Wildred by Charles Dickens. A great many years ago, two and twenty years to night, I well remember what a cold, wet night it was, with a thick sleet driving against the windows, and a melancholy moaning wind creeping through the leafless branches. It had been quite a sad winter time to us at home, the only sad one I had ever known, for it was just two or three weeks after the accident had happened that first laid me on my couch, and only a few days before my father had told me that I should never be able to rise from it any more. It had been a heavy blow to us all. We sat together in the drawing-room all the long evening, my father and my mother and I. My sister Kate had gone the day before to some friend of ours in the country. One gets so soon used to misfortunes and disappointments when just a little time has passed. But at the first they are often so hard to bear, and I think that never, at any time, did I feel such sorrow at the thought that I must be an invalid my whole life as I did that night. I was only a girl, not fifteen yet, and at that age we are so full of bright dreams about the future, looking forward with such clear, joyous hopefulness to the world that is just beginning to open before us, stretching out our hands so eagerly to the golden light that we think we see in the far distance. It was so hard to have the bright view shut out forever, to have the bright dreams fade away, to have all the hopes that to me had made the thought of life so beautiful, torn from me for ever in one moment. I had borne the knowledge of it all quite calmly at first. It was only now that I thought I really felt and knew all that I was losing. But, thank God, my life has not been what, in my faithlessness, I thought that night it might be. Thank God that the whole bitterness of those few hours' thought has never come to me as it did then again. Early in the evening my father had been reading to me aloud, but since he ceased no word had been spoken in the room. He had been writing for the last two hours. My mother, sitting by the fire, was reading. The whole house was silent, and from without the only sounds that came to us were the wind howling through the trees and the cold rain dashing on the windows, both cheerless sounds enough to hear. It was indeed a night for melancholy thoughts, and to one ill and weak as I was then, perhaps it was to be forgiven that, thinking of the future and the past, looking back upon the happy days that were gone, and forward to where the sunless clouds hung so heavily, I should scarcely be able to press back the tears that tried to blind me. For when we are very young we shrink so from feeling prison-bound. We pray so earnestly that if sorrow must come to us it may rather burst in sudden storm upon us, and passing away leave the blue sky clear again, than that our whole life should be wrapped up in a cold grey shroud, through which no deep sorrow can ever pierce into our hearts, no deep joy ever come to gladden us. And in that grey shroud I thought that my life was to lie hidden and withered, and now, while as yet it was only closing over me, 
while with passionate resistance I would still have struggled to tear it back. I felt that my hands were bound. A little thing will sometimes serve to divert our thoughts, even when they very much engross us. And so it was that night that I was suddenly startled out of the midst of my reverie by two loud sharp knocks upon the street door, a sound certainly by no means uncommon and perhaps if nothing more had followed, I might have fallen again into my former thoughts. But as I lay for a few moments listening, the door was opened, and then there followed such strange hurried exclamations, half of surprise, half of alarm, mingled with such apparently irresistible bursts of laughter, that my first dull interest began rapidly to change into a far more active feeling. My love, what's that? asked my father, without looking up. "'I can't imagine,' my mother answered, in a puzzled tone, laying down her book. Just at this moment we heard a quick step running up the stairs, and all our eyes, with one accord, turned to the door, which in two or three minutes was burst open, and to our extreme amazement in rushed our servant Anne, with a little half-naked child in her arms. Yes, that little creature standing on the step was the only thing to be seen when she had opened the door. Upon my word, this is going too far, my father exclaimed when he had heard Anne's story. It isn't two months since the same trick was played in town. Anne, call Tom to get a lantern immediately and follow me. We must make a search, though indeed it's hopeless to think of catching anyone on such a night as this. Whoever has done it is out of reach by this time. My dear, he turned round as he was hurrying from the room, don't do anything with the child until I come back. I'm afraid she's ill, and he closed the door. I shall never forget what a poor little object it was. It had scarcely an atom of clothing on it, just a torn old frock that would hardly hang together, and its poor little white shoulders and arms were all bare and wet with the heavy rain. Her pretty fair hair was wet too but her face was what attracted and astonished me most, for in spite of the bitter coldness of the night, it was glowing like fire, with a spot of the brightest scarlet on each cheek, and her large blue eyes so unnaturally bright that it was quite painful to look at them. Yet such a sweet face it was! My mother made her kneel beside me on my couch, and we talked to her and kissed her, and taking off the old wet frock, wrapped my mother's shawl around her. But all the time, and though she was certainly more than two years old, she remained as perfectly unmoved as though she had been a little statue. Only those great bright eyes were fixed upon my face, until I began to get absolutely frightened at her. In about twenty minutes my father returned from his useless search. "'We can do nothing more to-night,' he said in a tone of considerable vexation, as he joined us again. "'Poor child, she's very feverish indeed.' Why, exposure on such a night is enough to kill her. My love, you must put her to bed. There's no help for it, and I'll see what I can do for her. But really, it's a little too much to expect that all the sick children of the neighbourhood are not only to be cured for nothing, but to be housed too by the physician. And my father left the room to change his wet garments in no very contented state of mind. My mother put out her hands to lift the child from my side, and then, for the first time, a moaning sound broke from her, and leaning forward, she caught my dress with her little hands, and held it tight, half crying as if she feared to go away. 
I pressed her to me and clasped my arms around her. I couldn't help it, and she let me do it, and laid her head upon my bosom. The dear child, with that plaintive moaning, sounded again. I was almost weeping myself, half with pity, half with love, for I loved her so much already as we love all things that cling to us, all things that, weaker than ourselves, appealed to us for protection. And so, for I could not bear that against her will she should be made to leave me, still keeping her in my arms, I had the couch wheeled into my bedroom, and there in Kate's bed we laid her, poor little weary suffering thing. It would be too long to tell you all about her illness, for she was ill for many weeks. How patient she was! How anxious we all were for her! How, in spite of a few cross words at first, my kind father tended her with as much care as ever he bestowed upon his wealthiest patient! How my dear mother sat up night after night with her, as though she had been her own child! How the little thing crept so into all our hearts, that when at last one evening— my father pronounced her out of danger. Even his voice was broken with emotion, and we were fairly crying, both my mother and I. Nor will I trouble you with an account of all the fruitless search that was made to discover who she was or where she came from. But one thing I must mention, because it perplexed us very much, and added to our difficulty in deciding how to dispose of her. It was this, that we began to suspect, what at first had never entered our heads, that she had been stolen and was not a poor woman's child. It was her own dim recollections of past things that gave rise to this supposition, but the fever had so confused all things in her poor little head that we never could reach any certainty upon the subject. Well, the end of all was that we could not part from her, for we had all grown to love her so well already, and we knew that if we sent her away from us the only place that would receive her was the workhouse. So it was quite settled at last that she should stay with us, and because she had taken to me so much from the first, they pronounced, laughing, that she should be my child, and I was so happy. I called her Fortune, Fortune Wildred, we baptised her, that she should never find her own surname, she might at least have some proper claim to ours. Of course she must have had a Christian name before. Indeed, she said she remembered it, and declared that it was Willie but Willie seemed so odd a name to give a girl, that we agreed it would not do, and then I chose Fortune. My little Fortune! She was so dear to me, and she loved me too so well. Young as I was, our relation to each other became in many things like mother and child. It was strange that of her own accord, from the first, she called me Aunt Dinah, and I so soon grew accustomed to the title, and no soon, too, felt quite naturally into calling her my child, for though yet but a girl in years. I was becoming a woman very quickly, as I should think must often be the case with those who have their destiny in life fixed as early as mine was, for I had no other outward change to look forward to, as most girls have, and all my business was to settle down and be content. My life, I often think, might have been lonely and sad without my child, but with her I was very happy. It was as if I lived again in her, for all the hopes and wishes that my illness had crushed came into life again, but not for myself now. It was for her that I dreamed and hoped and thought for the little bright-eyed child who loved to lie beside me with her white arms round my neck and her soft cheek pressed onto mine, 
who loved, heaven bless her, to be with me always, who never was so happy as when, even for hours, we two would be left alone together, and with the perfect confidence that only children have, she would talk to me of all things that came in her mind, gladdening my very heart with the loving things she said. They all loved her, but none as I did, for she loved none of them so well. They used to say that I should spoil her, but I never did. She was not made to be spoiled, my little fortune, my sunny bright-haired child. She was my pupil for the first few years, and such dear lessons they were that we used to have together, dear to both of us, though most to me. She was so good and gentle, so sorry if she ever grieved me, so eager to be good and be forgiven again, as though my heart did not forgive her always, even before she asked it. So loving always. She never wearied of being with me, the kind child, not even when, as happened sometimes, I was too ill to bear her childish merriment, and she would have to sit quietly in my room and lower her sweet clear voice when she spoke to me. For she would hang upon my neck then, too, and whisper to me how she loved me. Ah, oh, I never shall forget it all. I never shall forget how good my little fortune was to me. I may as well mention here that soon after it was settled she should stay with us, we had a little miniature portrait of her taken, which I have worn ever since as a locket round my neck. We did this on the chance that it might possibly serve on some future day as a means of identifying her. Here is the little picture now. It is so like her, as I have seen her a thousand times, with her sunny veil of curls around her. The years went on and brought some changes with them. One change, which was very sad, my mother's death. It came upon us suddenly, at a time when we were least thinking of sorrow, for when her short illness began, we were preparing for my sister Kate's marriage. It was long before the gloom and grief about her loss threw upon our little household passed away, for she was dearly loved amongst us, and had been a most noble and true-hearted woman. When Kate had been married about a year, my father withdrew from practice, and to be near her we removed to Derbyshire, and he and I and Fortune kept house there in a quiet, cheerful way together. And so the years went on until my child was about seventeen. In this new part of the country we had not many neighbours with whom we were intimate, but there was one family who since our first coming had shown us much kindness. Their name was Beresford, and they consisted of a father and mother and one son who was at college. They were wealthy people with a good deal of property in the county. When we first knew them I had not been without a suspicion. I almost think it was a hope that Arthur Beresford and my fortune might one day fall in love with one another. But it was not to be, for as they grew up, I saw that there was no thought of more than a common friendly love between them, and indeed boys of one and twenty are generally occupied with other things than falling in love, and girls of seventeen, I think, generally suppose that one and twenty is too young for them to have anything to do with, as no doubt it very often is. So they remain good friends and nothing more. I remember well Arthur Beresford's return from college two or three months before he became of age, and how, on the day after, a bright June morning it was, he burst into our drawing-room with a gay exclamation, "'Here I am, Aunt Dinah, and free for the next four months,' and coming up to me took both my hands in his, and looked so gay and so happy and so handsome 
that it did me only good to look at him. He was in a very high spirits indeed, for not only had he gained his freedom, as he called it, but he had succeeded in bringing back with him his cousin, Neville Arlington, a fellow and tutor at Oxford, who had done him, so he said, such services during his career there, that had it not been for him, he should never have been the happy fellow he was there, which, whether it was as true as he thought it or not, I liked the boy for saying and thinking. And one or two days afterwards Neville Erlington came with Mr. Beresford and Arthur to call upon us. He was six or seven years older than Arthur, and neither so lively nor so handsome, but he had a firm, broad, thoughtful brow, and deep, lustrous eyes, and a voice so deep and rich and soft that it was like the sound of music to hear him speak. I liked him from the first, we all did, and it was not long before he became an almost daily visitor at our house, coming sometimes alone on the excuse, I knew it was but an excuse, of bringing us books or news or some such thing but more often with one or other of the Beresfords. Indeed, after a little time, I know that I, for one, fell quite into a habit of missing him if ever a day passed without his coming, for his quiet, gentle presence had in it a great charm to me, and he had fallen so kindly and naturally into my ways, that I had felt, almost from the first day, that he was not a stranger but a friend. Nor was I the only one who watched for his daily visits, or felt lonely when he did not come. My dear child seldom spoke much of him when he was away. Even when he was with us she was often very quiet, but I knew soon that in both their hearts a deep true love was growing up, and that my darling would one day be Neville's wife. And he deserved her, and she him. Timid as she was now, I knew that it would not be always so. I knew that presently, when all was understood between them, her present reserve would pass away, and my fortune, as she really was, with her bright, sunny gaiety, with her graceful, hoping woman's nature, with her deeply loving, faithful heart, would stand beside him to illume and to brighten his whole life. Such happy days those were while these two young hearts were drawing to each other, happy to them and me, though over my joy there was still one little cloud. Mr. and Mrs. Beresford were the only persons amongst our new friends to whom I had told my fortune story. I did not feel that it was a thing I needed to tell everyone, but now I was anxious that Neville should know it, and felt uneasy as day after day passed, and kept him still in ignorance. But indeed I was perplexed what to do, for he and I were almost never alone, and in the state in which matters were yet between him and fortune, it would have been premature and even indelicate to ask Mrs. Beresford to interfere. There was only one opportunity I had for speaking to him, and that I lost. I remember that day well. My father and Fortune had gone after dinner to my sister Kate's, expecting to be back in an hour, and when the hour had nearly elapsed, Neville came in alone, bringing a request that they would return with him to spend the evening at the Beresfords. I thought they would soon be in, so he willingly agreed to wait, and sitting beside me at the open window, he presently began, it was the first time he had ever done so, to talk of fortune. It was strange. Without a word of preparation or introduction, he spoke of her as only one who loved her could speak. For a moment I was startled. Then I fell into his tone, and I, too, talked of my child as I could have done 
to few but him. There was no explanation between us, but each read the other's heart fully and perfectly, and yet not even then did I tell him Fortune's story. I longed to do it, it was on my lips again and again, but I was expecting her return with her, my father every moment, and I feared to be interrupted when I had once begun, so the time went past, and I was vexed with myself when it was gone, that my tale was still untold. Though it was after sunset when they came in, Neville persuaded them still to accompany him back. I remember well his warm though silent farewell to me that night. I remember too when they were all away how long I lay and thought in the summer twilight. I ought to have been glad, and I was glad, but yet some low sad voice, that I thought I had hushed to silence years ago, for ever, would awaken my heart again making me break the beauty of that summer evening with my rebellious tears. It was only for a little time, for I who had been so happy. What right had I to weep because some hopes had died? I pressed my tears back, praying to be forgiven, and soon the soft stillness of the night calmed me. And I thought again of my dear child, and eagerly and hopefully as ever I had done when I was young, I dreamed bright dreams for her future life. When I was young, I was but nine and twenty now, yet how far back my youth seemed. Strange there were scarcely two years between me and Neville, yet how everyone, how he, how I myself, looked on me as old compared with him. It was late when they came home that night, and I thought my darling looked sad. I had thought so once or twice of late. She slept in a room opening from mine, and always came the last thing to say good-night to me. Tonight, when she came, I was grieved, for she looked as if she had been weeping. She stood beside my couch, the light from behind that streamed through the open door, falling on bright unbound hair, and also herself looking so pure and beautiful. My own fortune! I kept her a few minutes by me, for I longed to cheer her. But she did not seem to care much to talk. I said something about Neville, and she asked me if he had been long here before they came. "'About an hour,' I said. "'Ah! Oh, I am glad,' she answered. "'I was afraid my poor auntie had been alone the whole night. "'It was kind of him.' "'Yes, he is always kind, dear,' I said, "'which she did not answer, but smiled gently to herself "'and stood in silence with my hand in hers. "'Then suddenly she frightened me, "'for quickly stooping down she laid her head upon my shoulder, "'and I felt her sobbing.' At first she would not tell me why she wept, but whispered through her tears that it would grieve me, that I should think she was ungrateful. I had always been so good to her, and loved her so well always, but when I pressed her earnestly it came at last. It was because through the wide world she knew not where to seek for a father or a mother, because to the very name she bore she had no claim, because to all but us, she said, her life had ever been a deceit, and was so still, because she felt so humbled before those she loved, knowing that she had no right they should be true to her whose first step had been a falsehood to them. She told me this, pouring it out rapidly, passionately, and I understood it all, and far more than she told me. Alas, I might have guessed it all before. I comforted her as I could. I told her that her first grief she must bear still, hopefully, if she could, that for the rest she should not sorrow any longer, 
for all whose love she cared for, should know what her history was. I told her to have courage, and I thanked her earnestly and truly for how she had spoken to me then. And presently, weeping still, but happier and full of love, my darling left me, and left me to weep, because a grief I should have known would come had fallen on me. I said that the Beresfords were landed proprietors, and Arthur was their only son, so his coming of age was to be a great day. Of course I very seldom moved from home, but it had long been a promise that on this occasion we were to spend a week with them, and the time was now close at hand. Indeed, it was on the second day, I think, after I had had this talk with my child, that our visit was to begin. So early on that day we went. I have not mentioned that, for the last fortnight, besides Neville, the Beresfords had had other visitors with them. A brother of Mrs. Beresford's, a Colonel Horton with his wife and their two children, a little boy and girl. They had just returned from India, where, indeed, Mrs. Horton had lived many years. She was in delicate health and did not go out much, so that she was as yet almost a stranger to me. But the little I had seen of her, and all that fortune had told me about her, pleased me so much that I was not at all sorry for this opportunity of knowing more of her. There was something graceful and winning in her manner, indeed, that prepossessed most people in her favour, and there was much both of beauty and refinement in her face. It was the day after we came, and a kind of preliminary excitement was through the house, for the next morning was to usher in Arthur's birthday. And to-day Mrs. Beresford was giving a last children's party, expressly in honour of little Agnes and Henry Horton. I think we had every child for six or seven miles round assembled together, and there had been music and dancing, and a ceaseless peal of merry voices all through the long summer evening, and everybody looked gay and happy, and all went well, for not a few of the elder ones had turned themselves into children too, for the time, to aid them in their games. It was growing late, and even the lightest feet began to long for a little rest, when from one large group that had gathered together there came a loud call to play at forfeits, and in two or three moments all were busy gathering pretty things together to pour into Fortune's lap, and then they merrily began the game, and laughed and clapped their hands with delight as each holder of a forfeit was proclaimed. The most uproarious laughter had just been excited by Neville's performance of some penalty allotted to him, and then I recollect well how he came, looking very happy, to kneel at Fortune's feet and deliver the next sentence. She held up a little ring, and when she asked the usual question, what the possessor of it was to do, he answered gaily, to give us her autobiography. There was a pause for a moment while they waited for Fortune to declare whose the forfeit was, but she did not speak, for the ring was hers. Neville had risen from his knees, and seeing it he exclaimed laughing, for he knew it. What, Miss Wildred, has this fallen to your lot? She looked up hurriedly from him to me, and said, Aunt Dinah, quickly, as if to ask me to speak. But before I had opened my lips, Mrs. Beresford came forward and said kindly, Neville, I think it will be hardly fair to press this forfeit. We can't expect young ladies to be willing to declare their autobiographies in public, you know. I interrupted Neville and answered, But if you will take my account of Fortune's life instead of calling on her for her own, I think I can answer for her willingness to let you hear it. 
Shall it be so, Mr. Erlington? But he was eager that it should be passed over, was even vexed that any word had been said about it at all. I understand his delicacy well, and thanked him for it in my heart. But I knew what my child's wish was, so I would not do what he asked me, but promised that when the children were away the story should be told, and then the game went on. It was past ten o'clock when they gathered round me to hear my child's history. There was no one there but the Beresfords and the Hortons, and Neville and ourselves. I saw that my poor child was agitated, but I would not have her either know that I guessed she was so, or that I shared her agitation, so I took out my knitting, and began working away very quietly as I talked, just glancing up now and then into one or other of my hearers' faces, into Neville's oftenest, because there was that in the earnest look he fixed on me which seemed to ask it more than the rest. There was not really very much to tell, and I had gone on without interruption nearly to the end, and I was just telling them how I called her Fortune Wildred, because we thought the name she said she had was so strange, when, as I said the word Willie, a sudden cry rang through the room. It fell upon my heart with a strange terror, and in an instant every eye was turned to whence it came. Pale as death, her figure eagerly bent forward, her hand grasping Fortune's shoulder. Mrs. Horton sat, for my child's cheek too all colour had fled. Motionless like two marble figures, they fronted one another, their eyes fixed on each other's faces with a wild hope, a wild doubt in each. It lasted but a moment, then both, as by one impulse, rose. Mrs. Horton stretched out her hands. "'Mother!' burst from Fortune's lips. There was a passionate sob, and they were wrapped into one another's arms. I saw like one in a dream, not feeling, not understanding, not believing. A giddiness came over me, a sudden dimness before my eyes, a feeling of deadly sickness as we feel when we are fainting. There began to be a buzz of voices, but I could distinguish nothing clearly until I heard my own name spoken. Dinah, my father was saying hurriedly, you have that little portrait. Give it to me. I roused myself by a great effort, and taking the locket from my bosom, put it in his hand. Another moment and there was a second cry, but this time it was a cry only of joy. Yes, yes, I hear Mrs. Horton passionately saying, in a voice all broken with emotion. I knew it, I knew it, it is my child, my Willie, my little Willie. And she pressed the portrait to her lips, and looked on it as even I had scarcely ever done. Ah, I needed no other proofs. I needed nothing more than that one look to tell me I had lost my child. Mrs. Horton had sunk upon her seat again, and my darling was kneeling at her feet, clasping her hand and weeping. They spoke no more, they nor any one. Then when a minute or two had passed, Colonel Horton raised my child kindly from the ground, and placing her mother's hand in hers, led them silently together from the room. I closed my eyes and turned away, but still the tears would force their way through the closed lids upon my cheek, and as I wept, feeling, that night I could not help it, so lonely and so sad, a warm, firm clasp came gently and closed upon my hand. It was Neville who was standing by my side, and as I felt that friendly pressure, 
and met the look that was bent upon me, I knew that there was one at least who, rejoicing in my fortune's joy, could yet feel sympathy for me. It was not long before Colonel Horton came back, and from him we learnt all that there was to tell. Mrs. Horton, when very young, had married a Captain Morton, and accompanied him to India, where my child was born, and called after her mother, Wilhelmina. But she was delicate, and the doctor said that the Indian climate would kill her. So before she was two years old, they were forced to send her home to England, to relations in the north. An English servant was sent in charge of her, and both were committed to the care of an intimate friend of theirs who was returning to England in the same vessel. But the lady died during the passage, and of neither child nor nurse were there ever more any tidings heard except the solitary fact, which the captain proved, that they did arrive in England. It was fifteen years ago. The woman had money with her belonging to Mrs. Horton, as well as the whole of the child's wardrobe, quite enough to tempt her to dishonesty, and such was the history of my fortune's birth. I went away as soon as I could to my room, and lay there waiting for my child, for I knew that she would come. The moonlight streamed in brightly and softly, and the shadow of the trees without the window came and waved upon my couch, rocking gently to and fro, with a low music like a song of rest. It stilled my heart, that quiet sound, and lying there alone I prayed that I might have strength to rejoice, and not to mourn at all, and then, after a long time, I grew quite calm, and waited quietly. My darling came at last, but not alone. Her mother entered the room with her, and they came together, hand in hand, up to my couch, and stood beside me, with the moonlight falling on them, and shining on my child's white dress, as if it was a robe of silver. We spoke little, but from Mrs. Horton's lips there fell a few most gentle, earnest, loving words, which sank into my heart and gladdened me. And then she left me with my child, alone. My darling clung around my neck and wept, and calmer now myself, I poured out all my love upon her, and soothed her as I could. And then we talked together, and she told me all her joy. And there were some words that she said that night that I have never since forgotten, nor ever will forget, words that have cheered me often since, that live in my heart now, beautiful, distinct, and clear as when she spoke them first. God bless her, my own child! Brightly as ever the sun rose upon an August morning, did his first rays beam through our window to welcome Arthur's birthday. There was nothing but joy throughout the house, and happy faces welcoming each other, and gay voices and merry laughter making the roof ring. There are a few days in our lives which stand out from all others we have ever known, days on which it seems to us as if the flood of sunlight around us is gilded with so bright a glory, that even the commonest things on which it falls glow with a beauty we never felt before, days on which the fresh breeze passing over us, and sweeping through the green leaves overhead, whispers ever to us to cast all sorrow from our hearts. For that, in the great world around us, there is infinite joy and happiness and love. Such a day was this, and bright and beautiful, with the blue clear sky, with the golden sunbeams, with the light, laughing wind, it rises in my memory now, day never to be forgotten. I was not very strong, 
and in the afternoon I had my couch moved into one of the quiet rooms and lay there resting, with only the distant sound of gay voices reaching me now and then, and everything else quite still. I had not seen much of my child during the morning, but I know that she was happy, so I was quite content, and indeed I too myself was very happy, for the sunlight seemed to have pierced into my heart, and I felt so grateful and so willing that all should be as it was. I had lain there alone about half an hour, when I heard steps upon the garden walk without. The head of my couch was turned from the window, so I could not easily see who it was. But in a few moments they came near, and Fortune and Neville entered the room by the low open window. I was longing to see my child, I said softly, and with a few loving words she bent her head down over me, kissing me quickly many times. Neville stood by her side, and smiling, asked, "'Will you not give me a welcome, too?' I said warmly, for I am sure I felt it. "'You know that you are always welcome.' He pressed my hand, and after a moment's pause, half seriously and half gaily, he went on. "'Aunt Dinah, I have come to ask a boon, the greatest boon I ever ask of anyone. Will you grant it, do you think?' I looked at him earnestly, wondering, hoping, doubting, but I could not speak. Nor did he wait long for an answer but bending his head low. "'Will you give me?' he said, and the exquisite tenderness of his rich voice is with me still. "'Will you give me your fortune to be evermore my fortune and my wife?' I glanced from him to her. I saw his beaming smile as he stood by her, and her glowing cheek and downcast eyes, and then I knew that it was true, and tried to speak. But they were broken, weeping, most imperfect words, saying— I well know so faintly and so ill, the deep joy that was in my heart, and yet they understood me, and whispering, God bless you, Neville stooped and kissed my brow, and my darling pressed me in her arms, and gazing in my face with her bright tearful eyes, I saw in their blue depths a whole new world of happiness. A few more words will tell you all the rest. My child was very young and Neville had little beside his fellowship to depend upon, and that, of course, his marriage would deprive him of. So it was settled that they should wait a year or two before they married, and at the close of the autumn they parted. Neville, who had been some time ordained to go to a curacy near London, and Fortune, with her mother, to relations further north. It was to me a very sad winter for I was lonely without my child. But I looked forward hopefully, and every one was very kind. And in the spring an unexpected happiness befell us, for a living near us in Mr. Beresford's gift became vacant suddenly, and before it was quite summer again Neville was established as the new rector there. And then my darling and he were married. There is a little child with dark blue eyes and golden hair, who often makes sunshine in my room whose merry laughter thrills my heart, whose low sweet songs I love to hear, as nestled by my side she sings to me. They call her Dinah, and I know she is my darling's little girl. But when I look upon her face, I can forget that twenty years have passed away, and still believe she is my little fortune, come back to be a child again. End of Fortune Wildred <laughs>